good to see you this morning, and I'd like to uh, invite you uh, to open up your Bibles with me to John's Gospel and uh, the 8th chapter. We're spending uh, several weeks in this chapter. There's so much here, and we're going to be looking today at verses 31 to 38, and that is page 894 uh, in your pew Bible. Pick it up in verse 31 as we continue in our series today. The text says that Jesus, in fact it begins, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, I profess and I confess my love for you this morning and my love for your son. And I ask you to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This great saying of Jesus is going to be really the entire focus of the message this morning. Uh, I want you to notice who Jesus spoke these words to. Um, at the end of the verse of the last passage we looked at, John 8 30, the preceding passage, we read that as Jesus was teaching, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. That was verse 30. And now our first verse, verse 31 begins, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him. So there's a point being underscored here, isn't it? Jesus is talking to people whom John tells us, believed in him. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, I would imagine the believers would be thrilled to hear what Jesus said next. I mean, really, what greater encouragement could there be? Now, granted, he was giving them a test. He was laying down a test of faith, a test of true faith, true discipleship. When he begins, if you abide in my word, that's the condition, then you are truly my disciples. And Jesus is making it clear that the test of true faith is abiding or remaining or dwelling in his word. You know, it isn't how strongly I felt when I professed Christ It isn't whether I was baptized. It isn't whether I made a decision for Christ at some time in my life and walked down 
onto a field with an evangelist. It's where I stand spiritually at the end of my life. That is the test. Have I dwelt? Have I abided? Have I remained in Christ's word? Have I persevered in the faith? And we'll return to that in a couple of moments. But what Jesus does next after laying down this test is he does add, I think, the, you know, just the greatest possible incentive, the greatest possible encouragement we could ever need. And in giving this incentive and this encouragement, it's noteworthy that he doesn't refer to heaven, though he certainly could have, but he doesn't refer to heaven, but he refers to the immediate benefit that comes from our abiding in his word. Before we meet him face to face, he's talking about this life. And what he says is, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, to know the truth isn't simply to understand it. It isn't simply to, to, to feel it or be stirred emotionally because of it. When he says, and you will know the truth, he's talking about this, that you will be conformed to the truth. As you abide in my word, you will be conformed to the truth, even as Jesus himself is the truth. And the more truth changes you, the more free you will be. That's a remarkable thing. So when he says you will know the truth, he's talking about you will really be, become more and more the truth. You will, you will be with the truth in, in a union. You, they will, you will be inseparable from the truth. It will conform you. You will be changed. You will be transformed. And the more that occurs, the more freedom you will know in your life. And you say, well, what is this freedom? Jesus doesn't talk a great deal or doesn't use the word freedom a great deal. But it's a power-packed word here. What does he mean by freedom? And I would uh, express it very simply in three different ways. First, you're free when you are no longer, when you are no longer deceived by evil to desire evil, so you do evil. You're free when you're no longer being deceived by evil to desire evil, and to do evil. In other words, all the torment and the seduction of sin no longer affects you, no longer drains you, fatigues you, distracts you, shames you, degrades you. You will be free indeed. Second, you are free when you have the mind, the heart, the will, in other words, when you have the thoughts, the, des- the desires, and the determination to live now in such a way that when you look back on the way you lived today, in a thousand years, you'll be happy with the way you lived today. You will not have regrets. You will be free. I credit John Piper with that analogy of the thousand years. Third, you will be free when your heart and your mind and your will are so united to Christ in his grace and in his mercy for you, 
and the forgiveness that you enjoy with him and the love that you have for him. You'll be so united with him that the first and the second descriptions of freedom are true. That's what it is to be free. Now, there's an incentive for people who believe in Christ. But how did the believers respond? They were offended. (laughs) They responded with ugliness and challenge. They said, we are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And then (laughs) Jesus tells them. You really want to know? I'm going to tell you. He tells them that they remain slaves to sin in verse 34. He tells them, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you in verse 37. He will tell them that you are of your father the devil in verse 44. And lastly, as we come to the end of John 8, which we're not doing in the sermon today, but lastly, he will call them liars. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm thinking like, if this is the way Jesus describes believers, what about unbelievers, you know? But the point here is that there is a great difference between a fickle believer and a true disciple, or what we call a Christian, or what the Bible calls a Christian. There's a great deal of difference, and that's what Jesus is addressing here. Jesus isn't interested in a million converts if they're not true disciples. Jesus is interested in true disciples, and you see that throughout the course of his ministry. Well, how are fickle believers distinguished from true disciples and from our text I would make this this observation that faith for the fickle believer is little more really than Hebrew worship it's admiring someone from a distance it's identifying with them because it's cool to do that in your sphere it's good to do that They honor him with their hearts, or their lips, rather. They honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. It's hero worship. He's a hero. But they are as prone to discontent. They are as prone to being weighed down by sin. They are as prone to stubbornness before God as the rest of the world. And when there's a conflict between Christ's word and their worldview, or the way they prefer to think or feel or act, his word is simply ignored. Or when they're confronted with the truth of Christ's word in those areas of their life where this is the case, this problem exists, instead of you know, humble submission, there's a massive resentment. The true disciple abides in the word of Christ. That's the difference. It's that simple. In our text, when Jesus assures these believers that if they abide in his word, the truth will set them free, 
they react. I mean, how dare he would suggest that they are slaves. That was his implication. You know, he didn't tell them they were slaves. I mean, he was saying something very positive. They didn't have to, really, they didn't have to go in that direction. But of course they went negative. Of course they went defensive. Of course they went hateful. And then after he explains to them and says, you're slaves to sin, and there's lots of Old Testament evidence or understanding of that from Scripture, they become murderously agitated. And their sense of inherited privilege, in our language perhaps, they were baptized in the church. You know, they grew up in the church. They were children of the church. Uh, they faithfully, their families faithfully attended uh, a church. This sense, of, this sense of inherited privilege does not fuel their worship. It fuels their sin. It fuels their presumption. They feel they're actually exempt from the truth. They don't, they don't have to they don't have to get real with anyone. They don't have to be real and get real with themselves. They just don't have to do that. They have a substitute life. They're relying on something spiritual, religious, even you know, very Jewish, historic, or we might even say very churchy, very Christian, but they are, they're relying on that. And that is the mask. That is the... That is what they really, that is where they find their identity and their security. I'm a good Christian. I'm a good Jew. The fickle believer believes in Jesus only so long as the word of Christ does not clash with what they want. But when faced with the truth, the reaction of the fickle believer is either flight, as we saw in John 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000, or it's fight. They either attack or they hide. And here they attack. Why does Jesus press them on this point? Wouldn't it be smarter for him? Come on, meek, gentle, humble, Jesus. Wouldn't it be smarter for him to just simply bring those believers along? And I think the answer is this. I think the answer is you cannot bring people along who are not on board. If we cannot agree that the ultimate bondage is neither political nor economic, but is the vicious slavery to moral failure, to rebellion against God who made us, if we cannot agree that the ultimate bondage is our out enslaving devotion to created things rather than to the Creator, if we cannot agree that we are in the same boat, then we must not be on the same boat. And what's more, we can't really recognize Christ for the Savior He is. And we will not abide in His Word we will not receive from him the benefit that he has for us, which he sums up as freedom. But rather, we will distort his word, we will neglect it, we'll deny it, we'll truncate it, we'll edit it, we'll re-identify Christ in the way that we want to identify Christ that keeps us comfortable in the context of our own worldview, our own presuppositions. 
our own thoughts? I think that's why Jesus pressed this point. Okay, so now I'm going to segue. I'm going to segue, change in our direction in this message, and I'm going to consider what does this look like, though, in our lives? When Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What does that actually look like? You know, abiding or dwelling or remaining certainly speaks of our persevering in the faith as true believers. Uh, Knowing the truth and being freed by that truth speaks of our being sanctified, of remarkable spiritual progress. Over time, it is a process that as we persevere in our faith, we are sanctified by God's grace and his work in our lives. But what does that look like? If you abide in my word, you are truly disciples of mine, and the truth will set you, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. And I want to explain it, just illustrate it uh, in this way, out of my own experience in ministry, if you don't mind. I was thinking about this, I think, boy, I, I really think this is what I'm supposed to talk to the congregation. But when I talk to the congregation about this, I feel so old to say, this is the way I've seen it. But it is true that over decades, you know, many of you have come to me for counsel, which I hold as sacred, as you've struggled in your lives. And your struggles mirror my own. We share the same humanity. The nature that we share, our human nature, betrays us, betrays Christ. The impact of demonic forces on you and on me is real. And you know the evidence of the demonic in your life. I know the evidence of the demonic in my life because the goal of the demonic is to deceive and then to destroy. So I believe in the demonic. Because I've seen the demonic. And I know the demonic and its influence on me, the tempter. I understand that. I'm not ashamed to talk about the demonic in the 21st century. I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm sold on the demonic. <laughs> it exists. So a way that I care for my own soul and the way I seek to care for your souls, to that end, I've come to this understanding. Let's say you come to me, and you come to me alienated, or angry, or ashamed, or you come to me conflicted, or confused, or defeated, or depressed, or despairing, or disheartened, or you come to me doubtful, or fearful, Or we sit down together and you're grieving or guilty or hopeless. You're suffering. You're tempted. You're tormented. This is why people come to sit down with a pastor. No one ever sits down with a pastor and says, hey, I want you to know this has been the best month of my life and I just want to talk to you about it for the next hour. My family is so together and so intact. It's great. So when people come to me, I have learned over a long time, because I'm a slow learner, 
I have learned to listen and to ask questions and to pray. And when you talk to me, I hear you tell me your story. And you give me the details and you tell me the facts and you tell me the reasons and you share conversations that you've had and you talk about the events, the people, the illness, the betrayal. And while you're talking to me about those things, I am listening carefully because I'm also praying and asking the Lord to help me also hear what is the lie that you're believing? What is the deception that you are believing? How is Satan, how is he deceiving you in order to destroy you? What is the message? It could be very short, you know. I am worthless. You know, I am a failure. Uh, well, anyway, I, I have a right to hate someone. What is the message that is so contrary to the word of Christ? Who he is, what he taught, the cross, the resurrection, grace, mercy, his promise to make all things new. What is that lie that you are believing that is making you so miserable? And I say, I do this in my, this is my approach in counseling because it's my approach with myself. And often I, I hear people say something to me that is very brutal about themselves. Really, something that just is not true. And it's not true because it completely overlooks the truth of who Christ is. And it may be a word of condemnation. It may be a word of self-pity. No one really loves me or can love me. It may be a word that binds you to a past regret or a past sin. It may be a word that binds you to a worldview that says the world is always against me. It may be a word of self-justification. You know, this defense, I must defend myself. The underlying assumption, no, you must not defend yourself. Not before Christ. I don't dismiss for a moment the physical or the emotional dimensions of suffering. The value of medical care, uh, the value of medications, the value of psychotherapy. And I've referred many of you for those kinds of care. But I do realize also for myself, and I do believe that for you, the greatest contributor to human misery is spiritual. And until we're made aware of it, we cannot see it. And it is the lie that drives a wedge between me and the Lord that keeps me from trusting Him and abiding in His Word. It is that attempt, really, to destroy my faith, my hope, and my love for the one who's trustworthy, faithful, and unwavering. It is the lie that teaches me, that is convincing me that Christ is deficient as my Savior. So I really am alone with this. And alone is death. It is that lie that I ask the Lord to show me you're believing. And you may not be aware of it. Or that I'm believing. 
And by God's grace, the Lord's Spirit speaks life and life to us. He speaks to us the word who is Christ. And when, the, when we see this about ourselves, when we understand the lie and we can articulate, we can express, we say, well, that is a lie. And we can begin to put it out of our lives, although it will be a struggle. We can begin to put it out of our lives and abide in the word of Christ once more. Understanding this thing we fear, this thing that makes us hate, that feeds our resentment, our depression, our discouragement, has been a lie all along. And the goal of that lie is to destroy us. And when we go through that transition, see, we're knowing the truth. We're coming to know the truth rather than that lie. We're folk, we are actually coming to know this truth that we've neglected or been deceived out of. When we come to that, that truth that we had neglected, we, we go through that experience, we will remember that. That was a lie, and this is the truth. And that's what I'm not going to forget. And that truth will be dearer to us. And we will treasure what we once neglected. We will rehearse it to ourselves. We will worship our Savior for it. We will not forget it. And so it can be said, as we face these demonic forces in our lives, these demonic influences of deception to destroy us, we really can say, as we go to them and face them with the word and work through that, we can honestly say afterward, you know what? I know the truth, and the truth has set me free. And it just doesn't happen at conversion, obviously. We don't begin to know all the lies that we've imbibed when we become a Christian. And we're left abiding in Christ's word more securely than ever before. And we love it because it frees us. It frees us. But, and, it takes work. But it's worth the battle. It is a battle. And it's worth the battle. And then the next time the devil deceives you or tries to, the next time you find yourself having those symptoms that indicate perhaps that you're believing a lie, even if you can't identify it. I gave you like 30 of them earlier, right? I Very carefully, alphabetical order. The next time you're, these things are making you miserable, you'll know when you're feeling that way, when you're experiencing that, when you begin to live those attitudes, you know it's time to go on the hunt or to seek someone out you trust to go with you on the hunt and to root out that lie and really to cast it out so that you can abide in the truth. That's how we're sanctified. That's why persevering is such a challenge. We come to these points where we say it's easier to do nothing. It's easier for me to wallow in this. I can wallow in this for the next 30 years. It's easier. But it's killing you. 
So I think this is what perseverance looks like. Not the whole story. I think this is how sanctification occurs. And I just want to say to you, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord has brought you here, and he has made you part of this church, not only to help you grow and abide in the truth, but also so that you can help others do exactly the same. You'll know the truth, and the truth will free you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this portion of your word. And we ask you, if you would, to apply it to our hearts. There's so much in this, these single two verses, 31 and 32, that we, we didn't begin to plumb the depths of. I'm not adequate for. But Lord, I pray that you would help us all to grow in our confidence, in our love, in our devotion to your word. Uh, your word is Christ. Your word brings us to Christ. Christ is the word. We'll be careful to give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.